Welcome back aboard the Starlight Car. I'm Scott B, and I'll be your host for this evening, and I'm joined in the parlor by Richard Pillbeam, a PhD in sociology and a long-standing figure in the Dark Souls lore community. You can follow the work that he does at youtube.com slash SinclairLore. Our musical accompaniment is a super chill remix of Aquamarine by Magic Circuit. You can follow them at Magic Circuit on Twitter for more information. You can also find the work that we produce at videogamechoochoo.com, or if you're a little impatient waiting for new episodes of this show and many of our other fine series to drop, you can head over to patreon.com slash vgcc for our express pass to get all of our content one week early. While you're at it, why not head over to youtube.com slash videogamechoochoo for our fine new videos every Friday. Now with all the business out of the way, I think it's time for us to kick back, relax, and grab ourselves some drinks. I'll catch you after the music. Cool. Awesome. That was a very weak clap from me. I think it's fine. <laughs> I, I used to work on student films, so I'm used to like improvising claps. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know, uh, I know you are a PhD in psychology, right? Uh, sociology. Sociology. Okay. <laughs> How did you get into working on student films? It was the other way around. I got, um, I was at film school for my undergrad, and then I started doing more like media theory electives in my honors year. Mm. And because I, I basically found I didn't like the stress of being on sets all the time. Sure. And then um, that uh, media theory sort of drifted toward social science and i ended up there for my postgraduate that's awesome uh, yeah i almost called it a career it's not but (laughs) what uh we can cut this out obviously what what do you do exactly currently nothing (laughs) (laughs) i got my doctorate at the start of the year oh and since then i've i've been sending out um uh, applications but we've the government has uh, we've had a series of conservative governments who hate universities mm. and they've Ugh. gutted uh pretty much everything so there's like no they can't really take anyone on and they're having to let people go all the time so that sucks yeah like like i've been at the same university for um a decade and like it the cuts wow. have been so severe that like the place i did my undergraduate now no longer exists and has been demolished that sucks um yeah yeah but at least we can call you Doctor Philbeam. You, you can if you want. I haven't. I haven't really bothered updating anything. But yeah. <laughs> well. Well then. Uh, hey everyone. I'm here with Doctor Richard Philbeam. Hi. Uh, Rich. <laughs> who Who exactly are you? Can you justify yourself for me? <laughs> um. I am currently a podcast co-host. With mm-hmm. a woman called Sinclair, and we cover soul stuff, uh, Dark Souls and Bloodborne stuff, but we're, we're trying to move away from that into broader, um, just games in general. Specifically anime. Yeah, oh, spe- yeah of course anime. Um, <laughs> the, the story of how I ended up there is that I, I used to make videos about Bloodborne on a solo channel, and um, mm-hmm. I eventually sort of drifted away from that and kind of lost my... Um, my mojo i guess i sort of stopped caring much yeah and um sin had been a fan of mine and she messaged me and said like oh like i i remember you hey can you come on my channel and like talk to me because i wanted to like clear up um 
like things about it that she she sort of felt I had left sort of dangling and wanted to sort of get closure right. on. And I went on her channel and we just sort of hit it off and I think we started arguing um pretty quickly <laughs> and then people people just really liked hearing us argue. <laughs> so now I'm I'm kind of full-time as her co-host on her channel. A full-time arguer. I I respect that very deeply. Yeah, thank you. So so as I under, you you did a whole bunch of really great work. That's so uh, that's how I got into you oh, in the okay. first place. Uh, I, I think I got in the same way a lot of people did, where uh, eventually Vadi Vidya posted a video, and yeah. he shouted out one of yours, which mm. was The Bastard's Curse. Yeah, yeah. And I love, like, I absolutely love that video, like, top to bottom. Oh, thank because, you. Thank you. Because it showed a, it showed uh, examining souls in a way that a lot of people tend not to, because I think mm. souls lore is usually seen in a very i want to say literary but i don't th i think the word I w i'm looking for is more literal yeah yeah where there's like a very wikipedia approach to cataloging lore in general yeah and uh what, what i liked about the bastard's curse and there i've seen a few other videos do similar things but not many was that it took the Bastard's Curse specifically was about examining certain aspects of Dark Souls lore, um, namely the Cathedral of the Deep and how it can be understood through Shintoism. Yes, and yes. That was just like a super interesting video and I really loved it and I went back and watched a whole bunch of your other stuff through that and then it kind of seems like you had a bit of a falling out with that. I think you sort of hit on, like, what I was doing, which is that, like, because Dark Souls, like, it looks very Western- it's all like knights and castles and cathedrals. There was a tendency to act like it was therefore the product of like everything about it was also Western. When it used those things, it meant them in the way that that we understood them. But it's sort of referential beyond just simply Western or fantasies, the medieval fantasy style aesthetic. Yeah, it, it reminded me a lot actually of um, when I was in Evangelion fandom in the late nineties, because <laughs> that's, okay. that's a show that uses a lot of like Judeo-Christian imagery, and it kind of if you squint rough. Roughly everything sort of lines up like this thing from, you know, the Bible. Then the name means this thing that's kind of analogous <laughs> to that in the show. But the show isn't like about that. It's, no. it's repurposing those symbols in its own way to tell its own story. And like the Souls games did that as well. So you had like the Cathedral of the Deep is something that you mentioned. And okay, it's called a cathedral and it's got like monks in it and it's got like the the people in charge are called the deacons mm -hmm. it's it's like clearly calling to christianity yeah and it has all these like they've, they've got like a like a holy book and they've got these statues that kind of look like statues of the virgin mary and you're like okay it's that mm -hmm. but that's that's entirely like an aesthetic that they're borrowing but they're repurposing right. it to mean something else and actually how that how that place functions is it functions like like you were saying it functions like a Shinto shrine. It doesn't function like a cathedral because you start like looking at it and it's like, well, okay, but if this is like a cathedral, like, you know, it's got like fountains in it with running water, which is a Shinto purification thing. That doesn't make any sense in terms of a Christian cathedral. Mm -hmm. And there's all this stuff going on about how like it's a cathedral, but it doesn't worship a, a god. It worships a place. Like, the, the Cathedral of the Deep, it worships a place that is called the Deep. It's like a holy, like a cave or a lake or something. I mean, we don't really have anything analogous to that in, in Christianity. So, trying to look at no. it that way 
was like, it's kind of a dead end. It doesn't really get you anywhere. <laughs> and people were tying themselves in knots trying to explain this place. And I just sort of like <laughs> showed up and said, well, okay, it's, it's, this is a Shinto shrine and it's a shrine that's worshiping, uh, like it it's, looks like a cave or a lake. You don't really get a good look at it. Yeah. But that's that's what it's worshiping. And this is a thing in in Shinto. You have shrines to like, you know, here's the shrine to this tree. Here is the shrine to this mountain. We don't really have anything analogous to that. So looking at it in that way, it, it kind of started to click. And that's what I was trying to get at. But yeah, there was a there was a degree of pushback from a lot of people because. Really? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've spent that long in the fandom well okay i've been a fan of dark souls and dark souls lore stuff for a really long time i it willingly choose not to interact with the yeah fandom. <laughs> yeah there, there's um n- not like a large contingent but a vocal contingent of people who are just like completely hostile to the notion that any of it like is that any of it you can say like like they would look at that they wouldn't understand what it was and they would say well it's not supposed to make sense it's just supposed to be this random collection of like symbols and ideas that you make your own story out of (laughs) so okay the notion that no it's just things you don't personally understand but once you like look at it you're like no actually this this is it's just a shrine and like the it's got the purifying like water that you know shinto shrines uh, have this purification ritual where the running water goes over you and that like it cleanses the filth from you and like there's this um weird like worm woman up in the top who mm-hmm. like makes no sense really but then if you start looking at like japanese mythology you realize she's supposed to be um izanagi who is like one of the uh, like a goddess who was trapped in the underworld and she's kind of like persephone and she ate this like she sort of became corrupted by the place and she couldn't leave. And that's sort of, if you read her in that way, her actions actually make sense in a way that they don't, if you don't read it in that way and things like that. And they right. just, they was it's a massive amount of hostility toward just saying something like that, which is not like, like I, I'm not at all saying like, oh, you have to lock it down. There's one specific meaning. Right. It's one thing, because obviously that's not what's happening. I'm just saying that like, you have to understand where this came from. Yeah. And, like, they're, they're trying to actually say something with all of these symbols. It's not just a series of, like, random stuff they threw on a screen. Mm-hmm. Within fandom, there's that, that divide between, like, the creative and the curative aspects. Like, you were saying, very, like, Wikipedia. Right. There'll be people who want to who want to engage with the games purely as, like... You know, like, listing everything. Like, we'll just list, like, how all these things line up and list these characters. But because of the way the game does its storytelling, there's always going to be gaps in it. So they end up having to do, like, the... Basically do headcanon and do fanfic. But a lot Mm -hmm. of people are very reticent to kind of admit that they're doing that. Because they see that as they see, like, the creative aspect as kind of a lesser thing. Right. So almost... It, It, to me, feels like people trying to argue about it as if it was though actual history and less like a a, a more nebulous thing that people should try to enjoy on its own merits well, because yeah. T- to me it's sort of like they they be- they very clear that like there is a canon you cannot deviate from but the canon right. is that it doesn't make sense <laughs> and very if, intentionally yeah. like miyazaki has commented on this with regards to the first dark souls yeah so if you if you show up and you just say like no this thing that you've been arguing about for the last like three months on reddit 
is just like, no, this is just a reference <laughs> to like some mountain in Japan that we don't know about. And that's why it was confusing you. They just get furious. That's wild to me. And I, yeah, that's kind of, I just got exhausted from dealing with it and like people just wanting to- I get it. To have the same like really pedantic arguments for just hours and basically amounting to like, well, you can't prove, you can't prove that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, you can't prove it, but like- what is the point in having this discussion? Yeah, it, this this reminds me a bit of a tweet that someone actually made yesterday. I didn't yeah. realize it was this new, uh, but they said TV tropes and Wikipedia have fostered an urge to catalog rather than to engage with art. They encourage a recognition of technique, but reject any analysis of why a technique may be used or what it could mean. Yeah. That was by at underscore chicanery. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say, like, I don't think they started that, but they certainly made it more- um, Oh, no, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah, I remember, like, like this is going to be a weird example, but, like, Doctor Who fandom. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because that, that is something that's gone on for so long that, like, a lot of the attitudes in that are, like, sort of ossified versions of things that were posted in- Not posted, sorry, were printed in, like, fan guidebooks from, like, 1980. And people just picked that up and ran with it. And you couldn't deviate from, like, this is the official version of what happened. Like, this is officially, like, why, you know, like, this this story is bad for these reasons. Like, this character, like, was not popular for these reasons, according to this fan guide published, you know, 30 years ago. And that just became, like, that's the norm. You're not allowed to deviate from that. There's just, like, you stick to this. And I think, yeah, I, I don't know. TV tropes, at least, like, there's- there's a lot of weird stuff there, at <laughs> least. Like, there, there's, it's kind of more heterodox, but I, I understand exactly what you're saying, that it's about, like, this thing references this thing, and, like, here's the wild mm -hmm. mass guessing page, and, like, and like also, like, uh, the, the game theory and film theory channels, I think, have done oh, a, lot of, a lot of damage <laughs> in that regard. Because, because <laughs> like, what's, what they're discussing in depth and analyzing is, like, the most sort of... <laughs> It's not really, like, the kind of analysis that you would really call, like, literary theory. It's it's just, like, no. theories about the plot. Mm-hmm. Like, or sort of weird, like, it was all a dream or the characters in a coma right. stuff. Like, like, I remember someone saying, like, oh, it's really great that we're still talking about Bloodborne, like, four and a half years later. And it shows that it's going to last. We're going to be talking about this in the same way they talk <laughs> about Moby Dick. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people are still talking about Bloodborne. There is academic work being done on Bloodborne. I'm involved in some of it. But what is being discussed there is not, like, theory. Like, this character is actually this other character from a parallel universe. It's, like, <laughs> getting at, getting at like, what it is actually doing. Like, what is it about? How is it engaging with all of these ideas? Like, that's that's the analysis that I'm interested in. But a lot of people, I think, like, they just want sort of, like, explained. Like, who is this yeah. character? Yeah. And because, like, Bloodborne in particular, it's incredibly, like, rich in terms of what it engages yes. with and how it engages with it. And it, it's so, like, yeah, it's rich if you go into it. There's so much in there about, like, nationalism and, like, colonialism and the mm -hmm. history of medicine and how you're trying to impose like a rational framework on something that you don't understand and like you know the acceptance of of madness and the acceptance of transformation as part of moving forward and things like that 
um, that's all in there, and like, God forbid, it's ever really <laughs> discussed in these like <laughs> hours and hours of like arguing about, you know, like why Mikolash is wearing a specific shirt. You know, it's <laughs> like there, there was a thread on Twitter, and I've, I've totally forgotten her name. Um, but she was posting about like the character of Gwendolyn in Dark Souls, who is a character mm-hmm. that like is. You can read that character in so many different ways because it's so, like, kind of vague in the way it's done. But there's clearly something going on with Gwendolyn about, is Gwendolyn trans? Is Gwendolyn, like, intersex? Is Gwendolyn this non-binary situation? And, like, Mm -hmm. what that means and, like, what it means that that character is sort of shut away from everywhere else. But then at the same time, in being shut away, like, they are- also the one who is controlling everything from behind the scenes and the way that like the way that the the dark souls universe is presented as kind of a series of like dialectical conflicts between these these binaries and then at the end like the way dark souls when you when you're playing it you're sort of at the end point of one of those conflicts where every, all these binaries are starting to break down and resolve into something else you suddenly get this character who is like we're not entirely sure how they're presented. Is this character male? Is this character female? And that becomes part of that character's backstory. And they suddenly show up at the, at the end of this thing. And it's like, there's all this really like interesting stuff in there about Gwendolyn. But again, like, I don't know. A lot of the community don't want to talk about that. Like, like that, (laughs) that thread was much more interesting than, than like anything else we've seen. (laughs) coming out of that character i know at least anecdotally a lot of uh trans players of dark souls really uh have a lot to say about Gwendolyn. yeah and- yeah T- uh, for and against interestingly like yeah yeah there's like I-, I know a lot of trans people who really relate to Gwendolyn, and a lot of trans people who say that i don't think they're trans at all yeah it's it- it's it's a really interesting hole to go down i don't know if we should as as dudes that might not be our yeah, lane yeah <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, but, yeah. I'm just saying, like, there's there's not a yeah, there's not a TV trope style like answer. <laughs> and if there is, it's probably really offensive. Uh, probably. Uh, so just taking it back a little bit, what got you into Souls games, like from the beginning? Um, I had played Armored Core a lot the previous, like, oh, from yeah, Software. So, yeah, as a, <laughs> as a teenager, and then um, after graduating high school and before I went into postgraduate studies, I had no money. So I didn't really play any games. And then suddenly I started being paid to research things. I was like, I should probably buy a PS3 now. So I did. And I noticed Demon's Souls and that was from software. And I thought, I remember them. Right. So I got into Demon's Souls that way. And that was like 2012, 2013. (laughs) And then I just sort of played through them all in sequence, went Demon's Souls, Dark Souls, Dark Souls 2, and then Bloodborne came out and then kind of got me up to speed. Uh, Did you find yourself like really trying to engage with a lot of what Demon's Souls... Demon Souls is interesting because the world tendency stuff tends to make mm. it so someone on their first playthrough might not get every single like every single possible interaction. And yeah. later Souls games do similar things, but more but more just through generic scripting and obfuscation and yeah, less an actual yeah. system around obfuscation. So I, I was wondering if that if that like really gripped you. Yeah, I, I think like. I've brought this up uh, a couple of other times, but, like, the Souls games to me are, like, collections of things you're told over and over again are bad design decisions. 
and you should never do this. And yet these things right. come out and it's just across the board, like nines and tens. This is game of the year. People are obsessed with them for like <laughs> half a decade. Like Demon Souls is 10 years old. People are still playing it. But like, try explaining world tendency. It's like, well, this is a game where if, <laughs> if you die, it makes the game harder. But also by dying making the game harder it unlocks different pathways but then if you beat the boss it goes into reverse and then that unlocks <laughs> slightly different pathways and also the item that you use to revive after you die um can't be bought anywhere it's like really rare and has to be farmed from like the <laughs> toughest enemy in the game God. yeah like that sounds ridiculous but i mean people just love that game so much because it does yeah, yeah and like like you were saying this in like there's whole characters and whole quest lines in demon souls that you will likely never ever see unless you're told about them because they're based on these really weird mechanics like you've got to get a specific sword and like go to a certain place and then this thing will happen but only if you're in black world tendency which requires <laughs> you to have died this number of times and it just like things like that um this is something that, like, I was quite critical of Dark Souls 3 for doing, is Dark Souls 3, it's like, it clearly didn't want me to miss anything. Yeah, I feel Like, that. it was very clearly, like, yeah, we're gonna, sh here's all the stuff we've made, you're gonna see all of it. Every time there's gonna be a mechanic, we'll have an NPC there who, like, sort of tutorializes it. We're gonna have, like, like, th there's, like, a couple of optional areas in that game, but, like, if you compare that to something like Dark Souls, like, my favorite part of the Soul series is actually in Dark Souls 1. Because in Dark Souls 1, there is a, a huge poison swamp that is a total nightmare to navigate. I know what you're going to say. And, yeah. In the middle of that, there is a tree. If you hit the tree, you can go inside the tree. And there's a treasure chest. But then, for if for whatever reason, you attack the wall <laughs> behind the treasure chest, you can go further into the tree, which you would never think of doing because it looks like you can't even move past the treasure chest. You're then presented with the inside of this huge hollow tree that if you fall at any point, you will die and have to start again. And it's full of these really annoying monsters that if they do a certain attack on you, your hit points become permanently halved until you can... <laughs> and it's this absolute catastrophe as you, like, trudge through this thing. You get all the way to the bottom after hours, and it opens up onto this vast, like, sort of dune, this dune of sand in the middle of all these this, this ocean, um, which you can see as a path, and you go all the way down the path, and at the end of it is nothing. At the end of it is a dragon who, if you talk to it, lets you join the most useless covenant in the game. <laughs> Probably like, the second most useless. There's no reason to ever go there. It is just there. It, that is easily one of my favorite parts as well. Yeah, the just... fact it is just there, like, that makes that world feel more yes. real and more solid than any amount of, like, like lore text is going to do. Because mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, this is just a place. It's not there for you. It's just there. And it's got some significance because if you like remember back to the intro, you realize, oh, this is the this is the ash from the intro, the like, huge mountains of ash with the dragons right. and the trees. I know this place, and it's like this sort of awe-inspiring moment where you realize, oh wow, like, okay, this is where it all started. Yes. But like in terms of progression, in terms of mechanics, there's no reason to ever go there, and it's a total nightmare. <laughs> and if you go there before you get the ability to fast travel, you have no option but to climb all the way back up again, <laughs> which is even harder. And it's like it's like playing... Um, I know, like, Slow Beef, if you know him, when he was, he was playing yes. it, he commented, like, this is like playing Legend of Zelda for the first time, and it is, because it's like... Right. That is a game, again, that, like, makes 
it makes no concessions for you. It's full of just totally like stuff that is not you're not told about. Like mm-hmm. like one of the dungeons in that game, the only way to access it is just walk up the same flight of stairs like six times in a row. <laughs> Doesn't tell you that. You just have to like just screw around until something happens. And it's it's going back to I guess like that old old design sort of philosophy of like this is a world that you can explore. And it's not necessarily designed to be, like, an experience with, like, you know, flow to it. Mm-hmm. Like, like flow is, like, every sort of game design person on YouTube goes on and on about, like, it's got to have good flow. It's got to, <laughs> you got to be, like, making constant progress. And then Dark Souls comes out and people are stuck in the same place for four hours. And, they, and they, they're bashing their head into a wall, but then they come away saying, like, this is the best game of the decade. <laughs> well, I think that's also part of, like... I think that's also part of the flow of Dark Souls, though, yeah, because yeah. part of part of it mechanically is you need to die over and over again to learn what you're doing wrong, so you can become better as a player. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary Butterfield from he he's from a podcast network. They did a special like Dark Souls series that I was on a few episodes of. Like he was saying, like what makes Dark Souls good for him is that it's a series of ambushes and a series of traps that are all set up <laughs> very, very like specifically so the first time you run into them you just have to figure out how to get around the ambush once you know how to get around it the second time you go through that game it's really fast because you know exactly like okay the guy's gonna jump out from like behind me when i stand here and like this thing's gonna roll down the stairs and once you know that's there you'll kind of your level your strength is sort of irrelevant (laughs) it becomes about navigating like the design of the ambushes yeah like there's that the sense the sense fortress area in dark souls which is like that's an area that it's just a series of traps. It's just like boulders <laughs> falling on you and sides coming out of the walls. And it's it's like a real like kind of Dungeons and Dragons sort of like dungeon crawl yeah. situation. Um, and like, I remember the first time I played that, I was there for an entire evening. Same. To make it to the halfway point. <laughs> Made it to the halfway point. The chest is a mimic and kills me. And I just have to start the whole thing again. And then there's also and- like this whole under area in Sed's Fortress where like yeah. you can go down there. There's just nothing there. It's... It's junk just to distract you, full of really strong monsters. Yeah, but it, you can, like, you can farm those monsters if you want. But again, like, it's really just there because, like, why not? It's there. Like, this is a, this yeah. is a building. This is not a, this is not a, like, it's, it's an obstacle course, but it's not just an obstacle course. It's also, like, a building. It makes sense. It would have, like, this basement area. Yeah. The way the traps are laid out makes sense because, like, you would have, like, a place where these boulders could drop from. And then if you sort of really pay attention to it, it's like, oh, okay, this, the reason it's built like this is because it used to, it doesn't anymore, connect to another area. And you can see, like, mm-hmm. there was a door and a staircase that used to lead up to, like, the place you're trying to get to, but it's been bricked up. and like. That's why it's here. It's there. Like, it is lit. It's to stop people from making sure- It's to make sure only people who can navigate this fortress can get to the top. Like, it's- It all sort of, like, clicks together, like, logically why it's there. I I think my favorite thing about Sen's Fortress, just as a little aside, is that I've done it so many times now. I can do it really quickly. Yeah. But I still get- tons of anxiety when i'm about to do it i'm like here we go send fortress again and then i'm in and out in like 20 minutes yeah i've been uh been walking people through it on co-op oh that's cool yeah i i can't imagine doing i mean i've done sense fortress on co-op but it's like that seems even more like hell to me i don't know why (laughs) 
Well, you, you can you can block each other accidentally in those hallways, <laughs> so you can sort of like accidentally get someone squashed. But it's it's like this very this very in, to me it's like this very intricate machine. Yeah. And adding any more balls to it will just make it completely crumble. Yeah. That and yeah, and and like you compare that to like a lot of. A lot of, um, not a lot of, a lot of two, the base game of two is like sort of big flat open areas with monsters in yes. them. And then like, I don't, a lot, when two came out, a lot of people were quite critical of the guy who directed it, um, saying like, it's his fault that like, he doesn't understand blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then of course it turned out, you know, after the dust had settled that it wasn't really him. It was actually that like the, it had started and been abandoned and he had basically been called in as a fixer to sort of like get something releasable ready right. and then um he was in charge for the DLCs and the DLCs are like superb like those are yeah, better than any, anything in the and like yeah so he, the DLCs are again like very very intricate machines but then the base game is a lot of like a lot of just flat open spaces and were very wide in a way that like that was a weird thing about Bloodborne as well, because I remember when, when they announced Bloodborne was going to be in, like, one city, I was picturing, like, very tight kind of alleyways, kind of like uh, Resident Evil yeah. 2 sort of situation. And then when I played it, I'm like, oh, the streets in this city are, like, wider than <laughs> anything in Dark Souls. Like, Dark Souls was more claustrophobic than this. With a right. Couple, there's a few exceptions, and there's a lot of- there's a few places in Bloodborne that are very, very hemmed in, and it does- uh, it does add a lot of stress because in those games, if you try to swing your sword, you will hit walls. Yes. And they they add a- there's like a, one little spot in Bloodborne that like nothing else in the game plays like it, but it's a series of very, very narrow interconnected alleyways. And if you try to do like big swings with your weapon, you won't actually be able to do it because you'll bash into the walls. And like that's- Which part is that? I don't know if I remember it's, that. It's um, when you like- when you go down the bottom of the big, like, workshop tower- Yes. There's, like, a little lower part of Cathedral yes, Ward. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, that's- I always wondered, like, is the game gonna- the, Why is more of the game not like this? Because this is, like- Because, <laughs> again, it's a game that, like- Bloodborne is a game that they didn't want shields in, and they wanted to stress this is about dodging. Mm -hmm. So the scariest possible place to be in Bloodborne is an alleyway, because there's nowhere to dodge. Yeah. Yeah, and they never really capitalized on that. I feel like with the design of Yarnum because it's so <laughs> it's so it's so vast and wide and opulent. It's yeah, that's that's really interesting. I never thought about that when it came to Bloodborne. Um I I really like Yarnum for a lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah. It it feels very lived in as a city. Absolutely. It makes sense why there are big wide open streets cuz you can imagine and you can see like tons of people moving through them. Yeah, and you can see like horses and carriages and things. And yes. Yeah. You can go up to entrances of people's homes and just be like, "Hey, what's going on?" and they tell you to fuck off. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> "Of course they would. <laughs> yeah. This is where they live." Yeah. But like as a as a play space, that's really interesting. There aren't a lot of situations like that in bloodborne yeah like you never feel like you get a loss of movement where you clearly get that in dark souls a lot mm. that's probably one of the things dark souls does strongest i think is yeah. that in compared to other games it it wants to limit the ways in which you move especially in uh like anorlando for example like run, like running past the archers or going along the rooftop where the painting ninjas are yeah that yeah. kind of stuff was always interesting to me and probably the stuff people maybe dislike the most <laughs> but this this is a, like an example of what i mean that like everyone hates those archers they just hate them this is burning <laughs> rage at these like what what we're if people don't know what we're referring to is a part where you have to run up like the support 
like the beam of a large yes. kind of cathedral. And either side of you, there are two arches with like these gigantic bows that fire arrows that are like the size mm-hmm. of you. It's like a tree being thrown at you. And you've got to get, just get from one end of that to the other without being, because even if you survive the hit, the momentum will still knock you off. Yes. And people get stuck there for hours and hours just raging and raging. <laughs> and yet everyone remembers them. Like, that's, that's like a meme outside of Dark Souls. People know what you're talking about. This, like, ridiculous it's part of the like game. It's probably, like, the most famous set piece. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, and people would say, why did you do that? That's not fair. And it's like, yeah, but people remember it. People eventually got past it. <laughs> like, this had an impact. This mattered to people. Um, or, like, the, the bone wheel skeletons in that game. Yes. Like, God. Like, God the, the deterioration of the bone wheel across the series is tragic. Because it starts off, <laughs> I like- I know, because they're so deadly in the first one. Because in, in Dark Souls 1, you, like, you have- Again, you have very little indication this is happening. You just, like, drop mm-hmm. down into this, like, cavern, and you're like, oh, well, oh, okay, I guess I'm down here now. And then almost immediately you are run over by a skeleton that is tied <laughs> to a wheel and is spinning at you. <laughs> And, like, it will just, like, you're gonna die, it's gonna stun lock you, and you get, you're gonna die, and you're gonna have to go back again, and you realize there's, like, a dozen of these things just patrolling, and <laughs> if they catch sight of you, they start rolling after you really fast. And, again, like, everyone hates these things. There's, like, all these jokes about, like, oh, I bet, like, the the DLC boss is going to be, like, a giant bone wheel skeleton. skeleton. Yeah. And people, like, raging and raging at these things. But, again, everyone remembers them. People like them. It's like this, <laughs> like, part of the game. Everyone's like, I remember the bone wheels wasn't that great when I finally got past them. And then in 2, they make the bone- There's, like, a couple of them that show up in a boss fight, but they can't really yeah. hurt you. And then in 3, they're optional. You can just walk past them. Yeah. In, in 2, it's very, like- Fan servicey in a way, yeah, yeah. Because like you're you you when you're dealing with skeletons in a Dark Souls game, after you've played the first, are just like, when are these bone wheel skeletons yeah, gonna show up? Yeah. I don't know. When am I gonna deal with them? And then this boss fight starts where these guys summon up these like waves of skeletons, and then one wave is just bone wheels, and you're like, there you are. Yeah, and that's a <laughs> cool feeling, but at the same time, it trivializes them really, really hard. It's it's simul- it Simultaneously does fan service and puts them on a pedestal while while uh, while also not doing them any justice. Yeah, they're not they're not difficult. You can actually just kill them as they're appearing before they get a chance yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it 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 has an interesting feel to it when you overcome things in these games because, like I was saying, it's it's really about like understanding the the mechanism that you're engaging with more so than it's about getting stronger. Right. So the, there's, I mean, a lot of people get kind of like, like, yeah, I fucking did, like, yeah, fuck you when you get past <laughs> it. Like, they've, like, proven themselves on some level. But a lot of it is just like, you know, this was like a frustrating thing and eventually I overcame it. And I don't, I don't feel like, you know, a, it made me a better person necessarily. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, I engaged with this thing and then I, we got through it and, you know, we have, we have the memories of doing it. It, and- it, it definitely, like, gives off a strong feeling of achievement to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, that's yeah. why people play the game for the most part. I feel like, yeah, because it, it sort of moved from, like, that feeling of achievement that I've, I've engaged with and overcome, like, an encounter or, like, a mechanism or a puzzle versus, like, this thing has five billion hit points, <laughs> which is sort of where it, I think it started to go toward the end of the series. Uh, 
I I don't necessarily agree with that. I think a lot yeah, of it. Yeah. I think some of the added HP is kind of a benefit to a right. lot of Souls bosses because when they're weak, like when they're weaker, you can just kind of tell, and it just doesn't feel like the same challenge. Like Aldrich felt really, really disappointing to me the very first time I beat him. Right. Because it's like, oh, that was that was it. I guess I got all geared up for this long fight for nothing. But <laughs> uh, but it made it. But it makes stuff like the Sister Frida boss fight way more memorable. Yeah, yeah. Like not, yeah. not simply because it has like a bunch of phases, but also because each of those phases individually is uh, an engaging boss fight on its own. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, like again, like when 3 came out, people were complaining about things like Frida, where it's like the game tries to trick you into thinking the fight's over and then there's another phase. And then, <laughs> but like, unlike, uh, unlike stuff, other <laughs> times the game does that, like if you go back in, you just have to start from scratch again. It's not like, like there's parts in, in uh, 2 where there's like a, a two phase fight, but if you die during phase 2, you just start at phase 2 again. Whereas this, like, with uh, Frida, you got to do the whole thing from right. the beginning to end. And, like, people didn't like that, but I guess it's like the bone wheels. Like, people will probably, once that, you know, we've settled down a little. That's weird. That's weird to me that hearing that people didn't like Frida because I love Frida. I th- yeah, yeah. I, I love think, Frida, um, and like yeah. the only other people I've talked to also think Frida is really cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't talk to the larger Souls community. Uh, <laughs> like I don't think nearly as much as you. So I don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like to, to give to give a rough example of like this is this is sort of why I stopped engaging. It happened recently. Like. There was, um, there's a, a saint called Saint Hubert, who is the patron saint of hunters. Mm-hmm. And obviously Hubert, like Hubert is French. And, uh, there was a, a reference to like, uh, Saint Hubert heals rabies because he's a saint. And it's like one of his miracles is he could heal rabies. And rabies in French is, it's just called the rage. Like it's called rage. Mm-hmm. And, um, someone found a reference to Saint Hubert healing rabies and mistranslated it via Google as uh, Saint Hubert heals from rage. <laughs> and they were like, aha, the master Miyazaki. This is a reference to the way that in Bloodborne, when you hit things, oh, you, you can recover some of your health. You're healing from rage like Saint Hubert. And um, there was this thing, like, this, they went on and on about it forever. And like, um, uh, Sin, my co-host, like she speaks French. She's uh, from Quebec. And like, other people who natively spoke French were showing up and saying, no, this is just a reference to, like, Hubert heals rabies. And people were like, well, I don't think it is. What? <laughs> just like, because the, it's just like, it, 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 it has to be this. It has to be that, like, you've uncovered the secret mystery. Rather than just like, no, this is here because Miyazaki wanted a game about, like, rewards aggressive playstyle. And it's just like, I, I can't. I need to go. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is ridiculous. I'm glad I don't engage with the Souls community that deeply. Um, yeah, it, like, I want to be clear, it's not the Souls community. It's just, like a, yeah. like, a very, very small group of very vocal people who, like, want everything to be impossible to understand, right. basically. Right. So they can feel clever for finding things that don't exist. But, like, yes. like, I'm still very active in the community, but I'm active in, like, the the creative spaces like the like i'm friends with a lot of like fanfic writers and fan artists and like oh that's really we cool. talk about it and like that's who i'm really hanging around with but like the 
stuff like the the Uber rabies thing, I was just like, I can't. I what is the point of having this discussion? <laughs> it's stuff like that, and like it's 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 not even like a fuck. What is the word I'm thinking of? It's not even like a, an actual debate. It's just you're factually wrong about something, and you refuse to accept it. And it's I and I hate saying that because once I say like you're factually wrong, it sounds like I'm one of those like well the canon says, and that's not what right. I'm saying at all. <laughs> I'm saying that like. It's not that. Like, th- there's more to talk about here. Like, like currently, like, I, I said, like, I, I haven't really done any academic work since I got my doctorate at the start of the year. But, like, I have been, like, I'm um, ki- I'm talking with and working with two two academics in the US because um, they wanted to do, like, a paper on Bloodborne. That's cool. We're talking about that, like, we've been talking about on and off since, I think, March-ish? And just compiling just piles and piles and piles of notes about, like, how it engages with all of these things. You know, like like we were saying, how it engages with ideas like, like the way that, like, medicine is used as a colonial force. Right. Like, that's something that, like, that game does. Like, there is a, like, for, we'll talk about it now, like, there is a, a, a an area in that game that is, like, it's this um, very isolated fishing village, which is clearly drawn from Lovecraft's um, Shadow of Rinsmith. Yes. And that is a place that has been, like, defiled by a group of, like, colonials who have, like, murdered the people there. But it's specifically, they have done that for reasons of medical research. Like, this is not- mm-hmm. Yeah, it's using, like, med- like the way that medicine- is being used as a means of like I remember like like this is an example when Red Dead Redemption Two came out. Someone on Twitter was saying like, well, the thing about this game is like I don't like that you're playing as a a gunfighter in the old west. Like why why couldn't you be why couldn't you be a doctor in the old west? And it's like, Oof. well, okay, but you also have to. But like that's coming <laughs> from from a point of view that doesn't understand that like medicine in the old west as part of that colonial project was used right. to oppress like was used to to like really you know was part of that genocide like that played a role in that and that's not something that games often acknowledge but bloodborne has this whole this whole strand in it that's about like how medicine and healing this is not like this is not like rpg like cure spell this is actually like a process this is like an institution and it right. does a lot of really bad things to people and it's it it is it comes from a certain like social context and a certain political context and what it considers like something that has to be healed and how it heals it and like who who is going to receive this treatment and like you know what needs to be cured and like how we cure it and what is what is aberrant and what is normal those things are not like those aren't set in stone. Those are entirely down to the people doing them. And you very rarely get that acknowledged. Because, like, I, I've compared, like, the major organization in Bloodborne to, like, the Umbrella Corporation from Resident Evil. <laughs> but the thing is, the Umbrella Corporation is pretty much just straight up, we're evil. Like, we just want to yeah. make we just want to make bioweapons to kill people with. Right. If anything, like, the ways in which they're trying to help people are just clearly excuses. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Bloodborne is, like, it's a much more complicated thing where it's, like... This is this does roughly map on to like the history of how medicine actually developed so that like mm-hmm. we are deciding that like certain things need to be cured and like certain kinds of people are worth experimenting on and certain kinds of people like should be spared from it and yeah like that's really interesting and again like that's something that I'm talking to academics about but I mean I I don't know if like 
you really get that like that that's what i mean about like there's right. there's all these different possible ways of looking at it in different interpretations and different kinds of engagement but like which is why i don't like ha- I, I okay i guess my my issue with the whole situation has been that like in order to understand like things like that in order to actually really get at what is going on in them you do have to understand like just the literal events of the narrative, which are often obscured. Mm-hmm. Like a big deal with Bloodborne when it came out was that because like the the Healing Church, this big um, medical organization, because they're so covered in the trappings of Catholicism, people were thinking, oh, this is, just- oh, it's a church. Okay. Like this is a mm-hmm. church. And I'm sitting there saying like, no, it's not a church. It's right. a group of mad scientists, and what it takes from from Catholicism is the idea of like if you if you take in holy blood that allows you to commune with the divine. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of all it's taking from Catholicism. <laughs> it's taking that that central idea of the Eucharist and extrapolating from that not really a religion, but like a group of like scientist mystics who are trying to like engage in like force you like sort of like um dr moreau kind of situation where we're trying to like we're tinkering with human evolution we're we're trying to figure out like how to you know we we found this this divine irrational thing that cannot be comprehended so we're we're now going to try and impose a rational framework on that as scientists and how that all goes wrong and if you view it if you ignore that and you say oh it's it's catholicism then you you miss out on so much about that thing that is very rich and very like open to discussion and that's why i I got sort of like thingy about people say oh well it's open to interpretation and it's like (laughs) well okay but what what you're saying is open to interpretation is like just what actually happened on screen versus like what it's saying and that's sort of like the the bind i found myself in a lot of the time with it like there's a there's a boss in Bloodborne who when when he's encountered he's posed like the Pieta like Christ um on the Pieta right and that's a very obvious like it's obviously it's drawing from Catholicism like that's where that imagery comes from it's he looks like Christ in the Pieta but you can't read that character as Christ yeah it's sort of like Evangeliony in the same way well but it's like okay if you want you can say that's the Pieta fine but you can't read that character as Christ it goes nowhere because it's right. like this it's right. like he's he's Dr Frankenstein he's not Christ right but he's posed like Christ because they like they have used all this Catholic iconography to do this church <laughs> and that's right. yeah that's that's what I, I got into this situation where I'm like can we please stop saying this is this is Catholic because it's it's like a little bit, but not really. It's it's more like, uh, yeah, like it remind like it's more like sort of you know the history of medicine and and the way that almost like the way that prisoners of war were experimented on in certain right. places and like like there is a like I I don't want to say this like as a Westerner like in too much detail because I don't really know much about it, but there is a strain of like medical horror in Japan that we don't really have in the West, and like Bloodborne is engaging with that on a level that like right a western game probably wouldn't and that's really worth looking at it and again like one of the one of the academics i'm working with on this like she she lived in japan for a long time so we have and her like partner is japanese so we're sort of getting into that via her it's interesting there's so much to talk about but i also don't really give a shit about the timeline which is what everyone else wants to (laughs) talk about and i'm like but i don't care about the timeline i care about like why these cause and effect things actually happened 
I would love to read that paper when it's finished. Well, we don't know. It's it's probably going to be about 40 <laughs> at this point because there's so much to say. And like <laughs> someday. I Yeah. I love Bloodborne. I'm very I will gladly I will gladly read something about it 40 years later. <laughs> Um, so just, just outside of, like, the specifics of what, like, the Souls lore community is into, it, it, it's interesting to think about the potential politics of that kind of community. Oh, yeah, because yeah. Because when you think about Souls in general, you kind of get this very exclusionary, almost conservative, get-good-esque <laughs> thing where people are just pushing... You're, like, if you're a new person trying to get at, like get into this, part of the foundation of it is constantly being pushed back against. And it's it, it does not feel welcoming as a new person. Yeah, I feel like, again, that's that's down to, like, there's, like, a vocal, like, group of very... There's a small vocal group of people who will try to push you out for that. But generally, like... Interesting. It, it depends on where you are, because, like, in the, in the fanfic community where I'm mostly hanging around... People aren't really like that. They're just like this is a yeah. cool, this is a cool place to explore. And like honestly, the games are not really that hard. Like that's <laughs> that's a Bandai Namco like marketing thing. <laughs> yeah, prepare to die edition and all that. Yeah, pre- yeah, yeah. And it's like okay, this is like it's hard. Like I remember, I think the the issue is when it came out. It came out around the same time as Skyrim mm-hmm. and <laughs> yeah, Skyrim. Like and aesthetically, they're sort of similar. Like this is like a European kind of esque fantasy world, and like you're running around like fighting monsters with a sword and stuff but like again like skyrim is a game where like you you can just sort of like you're kind of untouchable in a lot of ways like you you're not really gonna die and like i remember so many dark souls playthroughs they would start with you you would go to the the hub and there's like one npc there and so people like oh i'm gonna kill this guy and they'd walk over and try to kill him and he'd just instantly parry and repost them and they would just (laughs) die on the spot and then realize that because they respawn at the hub he's still aggro (laughs) so they would just be trapped in this endless loop of like the one (laughs) the one npc murdering them over and over again and it was kind of a humbling experience and i think like yeah compared to some compared to like uh, an rpg that's like and this is not a criticism of those games but like something that is more like sort of languid and like open and you sort of can like do whatever you feel like um the souls games were kind of like no no you you there are there are like rules you have to follow when you're doing this Mm -hmm. and like if it made you very hyper aware of your environment like like that hub area that we're talking about there's a bottomless cliff just off to the side and if you like not paying attention you'll just walk off it and die right yeah and like if you if you try to run in and just like mashing r1 you're gonna die like it happens <laughs> and that, that i think but like you, okay so it's hard compared to a lot of like you know compared to skyrim compared to god of war like it's it's pretty like it's it's punishing but it's right. not like it's a game where you you can you just respawn when you die and you don't really lose anything of value and you have essentially yeah. unlimited resources. So you're going to get to the end of it. Like um since Sin and I were playing it on level 1 recently like we did the no level up run. Right. And like neither of us are particularly good at that game, but we still got to the end <laughs> on level 1 just basically through like through, like understanding and memorization. Yeah. Yeah, well yeah, memorization and also knowing just like, you know, with knowledge of how these systems work, the game doesn't quite mm-hmm. explain. Like now, I know that like okay, a fire battle axe behaves differently to a regular battle axe <laughs> with a fire buff applied, which the game doesn't really tell you. But now that I know all of these things, like it's it's like not like I'd rather if you showed me like Dark Souls Soul Level One and like the original Contra, like I'm gonna have much 
much tougher time playing Contra than I am playing Dark Souls. Right. Like, that is a hard, hard, hard game. But, yeah. That yeah. game's a bastard. Yeah, Dark Souls is more just like it's it punishes you and it has a series mm-hmm. of like challenges you have to overcome, but it, it wants you to finish. Yeah. The difficulty of it is definitely more through a, a lack of understanding and ob- and like obfuscating yeah. goals and like when I first played it, I had to have someone tell me you should go back to Firelink Shrine and talk to the big snake-headed man. Yeah, and I had yeah. like beaten Sen's fortress at that point, and I was like, "What? This? Wait, how long has this guy been here? <laughs> Turns out for a while." Yeah, but yeah. The game doesn't want to signpost you in that way. It wants to let you explore. And yeah. uh, I, it's really interesting in that regard, especially when it comes to that character and uh, Darkstalker Koth and the interactions you can have between those. Um, uh, yeah, Koth is a really interesting kind of example of what I was saying, where, like, Koth is a character who is locked off unless mm-hmm. you do something that's that kind of amounts to, like, a sequence break. Like, you would not, you wouldn't ever think of doing it until maybe your, like, third playthrough, you would realize, oh, wait a second. The the only time it signposts you to do that is, like, when you see the big gates that you've probably already recognized from getting to Anerlondo and walking up the side path and seeing, oh, this gate is blocked off. So when you see the cutscene that drops off these, these, like, gates and see that there isn't one to one of these four major bosses that you can go kill... Is like, oh, ma- like maybe some players will catch that, and yeah. then maybe they'll do it next playthrough, or they'll probably like just 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 like bash their head against New Londo until they finally get yeah. to four, like maybe get to four kicks if they killed Sif. But yeah, like, you know, some people are very weird about that stuff. It, it's very against the critical path. And all Londo as well is another example of that. Where like when you meet some um, uh, Princess Guinevere and an all Londo. You can kill her. Yeah. And, like, you would think that, like, the what happens is, like, she's there, and if you just do any- de- she's this huge, like, woman reclining on, a, like, a sofa. Mm-hmm. And she sort of tells you, like, okay, here's the next thing you gotta do in the plot. Um, If you, like, shoot an arrow or throw a bomb or something, she will die. And mm-hmm. it's not even, like, she dies. It's revealed that she is an illusion. She disappears. And then- all the other parts of Anolondo start disappearing as well. And when you go mm-hmm. outside, it's like dark and empty and silent. Right. And you realize the sun has disappeared and it's now nighttime. And it's like, oh, I just found out that the whole of like Anolondo <laughs> is this weird like illusion that was created by someone else. And like in, in any other, and it doesn't really do anything. Right. Like what it, <laughs> it, it opens you up to some like, some new NPCs will spawn and try to kill you, and you're now open to invasion by other players. But, like, right. what happens as a result of that is, like, it, like in any other game, like, Dark Souls 2 does this. The whole Guinevere thing, like, in Dark Souls 2 yeah. and other ones, like, that character would either be invincible, or, <laughs> like, if you hurt her, nothing would happen, or she would just blink out of existence. But this is, like, no, it, it this thing that you probably wouldn't think of doing, or maybe you would do as a joke. Like, they thought that through and it radically changes the whole world structure by doing this one thing. Because, like, in in Dark Souls 2, there's a part where you meet the queen and it's a very similar situation and she's away from you. You can fire arrows at her all day and, like, it does nothing and eventually- And she just leaves. Yeah, she just- she'll, like, ignore it for a while and then disappear. Whereas in this, it's like, oh, yeah, and, like, I I just found out something about the world that I didn't know before Mm -hmm. as a result of just- like they they thought everything through on a level that like you don't often see and like 
I, I guess like um something I've tried to do with with Sin is to go back to older From games and point out that like a lot of the things in Dark Souls people say like Dark Souls did, they come from like these are from sort of house standard things like um like the Kingsfield games like Dark Dark Souls seems a lot less radical if you've played Kingsfield because <laughs> like pr- Kingsfield does like the big interconnected world the um. The, the, like, not really being told anything, but having to get it from NPCs, and the NPCs are very cryptic, and, like, the way that, um, like, uh, like, Kingsfield begins with, like, there's just an enemy, if you go too far to the left, it will just kill you in one shot, and you'll just have to start the whole game again. <laughs> and it does, yeah, and, uh, like, and Kingsfield does that, the sort of ambush thing that rewards you for knowing where everything is, because, like, in, in Kingsfield, there is a very, very strong sword that is in a cave full of skeletons behind a waterfall. If you go there mm-hmm. when you've never played the game before, you will be killed by the skeletons because they're extremely strong. But if you right. know ahead of time, okay, the skeletons are here, you can make a beeline for that sword, grab it, come back again, and, like, you're now much stronger. And it rewards that sort of, like, it's very soulsy play style and, like, the the way that, like, you know, it has the Estus Flask system in it. Um, you get hmm. flasks in that game that you have, like, it, you refill them to get you know, equip to like heal yourself and it has a That's interesting. You know, there's like place yeah, and there's like places in it where like there'll be two or three ways to get to one place and like like it'll turn out that like there's an NPC who wants some like vast amount of like he wants to trade items with you or wants a whole lot of money for a key. Mm-hmm. But then it will also turn out that if you just know the layout, you can get to that place without the key. Right. Things like that. And it's it's that sort of stuff is like it's from have been doing this for like twenty 25 years that's that's really interesting um, since like kings yeah kings kingsfield's like 95 i think and they've been like since then like prior to souls their big western success was armored core so people if they right. knew them at all knew them from armored core but not from this yeah are you excited for a potential armored core game after they've made these souls games? oh god i've been ha- i'm so disappointed actually <laughs> because i remember when when um sekiro was just announced there was an interview with Miyazaki where he said, like, our projects are, like, um, we're doing the successor to Dark Souls and we're also doing a reboot. And at that point, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. Sekiro, successor to Dark Souls, so Armored Core must be the reboot. Uh-huh. And it's it's like that Simpsons joke where, like, Homer is there with the pennant and mine just had, like, Armored Core written on it. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm just sitting there, like, waiting. And then it turns out that, no, the successor to Souls is Elden Ring. And the reboot was Sekiro because that started off as Tenchu. That's interesting. So I, <laughs> I can understand the Tenchu connection. I just, uh, I don't know. It it feels so whole as its own thing. I feel like with with, with Sekiro, there's almost a point in it where you can like it's not it's not this like blunt, but th- there's a point kind. Of, I think like after um after the first encounter with Owl, where you can say like, okay, the game has kind of changed now, like what it's about. Mm-hmm. It starts to get more fantasy based. You start running into like, like you encounter like another like defiled village where people went seeking a cure. That's like, oh, this mm-hmm. is very bloodborne. And prior to that, it's been like sort of fantasy ish, but very grounded. Like there were monsters, but yes. I was basically just fighting people. And now there's like fish monsters and like a huge um. There's like ghosts and things and like children ascending to heaven and it's like ah oh, we're here again <laughs> and again like uh, i i've been looking for a good excuse to play through Sekiro again it's yeah it's harder because um 
I really love going into Souls games and making a build and like trying yeah, yeah. these different play styles, and you just don't get that with Sekiro. And I, for better or worse, because I think Sekiro on its whole is a very well constructed and very fun game. I just have little urge to replay it, and if I I played it on PS4 originally. Yeah. Um, I, I want to do a new game plus, but if I replay it, I'm probably going to replay it on PC. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if I'm like in this weird spot where I'm like, do I just start a new game plus here? Or do I start a new game here? And it's like, I don't, I don't know if I want to invest that much. What you said about builds is like, it's interesting given that like, there's certain like parts of the fandom that I hang around that are maybe not the sort of mainstream understood idea of what the fandom is like because right these are people that have like played through like demon souls dark souls dark souls 2 bloodborne dark souls 3 all the way through platinumed them Mm -hmm. um really really into them the second it was announced that in sekiro you have to play as wolf you don't have a choice over who you are and there's no (laughs) builds in it they just said i'm not interested right even if even if like at this point the gameplay had been identical to souls because what matters to them is the creative process yeah. of creating my own character and taking them through their personal adventure and they don't necessarily care about what wolf was doing and i think wolf is a really cool and interesting character yeah, yeah. uh it, it's weird that he it feels like he has a lot of character for someone who is essentially like a silent protagonist yeah i don't know if you've played the metro games much at all uh no I, i've watched a friend stream them but i haven't played them it, it's sort of the same concept with uh with rtm who is right. a character that is completely just 100% does not talk except right. for like interstitials. But he has so much character because the thing you can do in those games is you can just like, uh, I played Metro Exodus earlier this year. It's fucking amazing. I love right. every second of it. Um, but one of the, one of the big things you can do in that game is you can just sit down, right? You just like <laughs> there, there, you could sit down and it's like, you haven't a uh, wheel of interactions here. And it's like, do you want to drink from your flask? Yeah, I do. Do you want to nap a bit? Sure. Why not? Or, uh, especially the sections where it's like, you're, you're just sitting there with your wife, you're in your cabin together and you can just like lay around with her and listen to her talk about all of her insecurities and everything she feels like is going on. And like you have these contextual interactions or you can like cuddle her in different ways. Aww. And it's like, <laughs> it's cute. And it's like, it, it tells so much about who this character is that these are things that are priorities to him and they're purely mechanical. Yeah. It's it's so cool. And I feel like Sekiro does not exactly the same thing, but um if you play the game in certain ways, you you get this you get this like vibe of what kind of ninja this dude is. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not you're not gonna get certain endings unless you're like perched up against walls trying to eavesdrop on conversations with your friends. Yeah, yeah. And like um again, like that's an interesting point of discussion when talking about like the capital L law stuff. Because mm-hmm. Sekiro's like story, like it's pretty straightforward, like what you're doing and why you're doing it and who's yeah. motivated by what. But there's again all this interesting stuff in there, particularly around Genichiro mm-hmm. about like extreme nationalism. Yeah. And how like pride and love for your country gets turned into something that's toxic and destructive. And like like I was talking to a friend about actually it was Talia from from No Katra. She was saying nice. like like yeah, if you took Genichiro's lines out of context, he sounds like the hero 
of like any other game because he's saying like (laughs) i will as long as there my heart is beating this country will never die and i will lay down everything i will lay down my life to protect ashina Mm -hmm. but while he's doing that in the background the way he's doing it is killing everyone yeah he's actually he is like like this this rot that is spreading through the country everyone (laughs) is dying and like being drained and becoming sick because he is just he is he is this extreme nationalist who is trying to recapture like this this nostalgia for this past where Ashina was glorious mm-hmm. and he's so desperate to get back and the Bloodborne does the same thing it's like there was a past where everything was perfect and we will sacrifice everything to get back there but right. then you're aware that that past never existed that like this is yeah there was never a golden age and trying to bring it back is destroying the present yeah, and, like, the guy who ends up taking down Genichiro is this wanderer who doesn't belong anywhere, <laughs> but he is he is at the core motivated by, like, love for someone. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, that's that's really, like, like again, like, Genichiro sounds like he's in Attack on Titan, if you listen to him. But <laughs> the game just straight up presents him as, like, no, this guy is just, a, like, this weird fascist lunatic. Like, don't, yeah. don't be this guy. And it's, like, again, again, like, not wanting to go too much into-, into Japan because I am not like it's not something I know enough about to be to make right. authoritative statements on but like it's pretty clear that like extreme nationalism is a thing there and Miyazaki is is engaging with that through that character yes absolutely yeah and again like like Bloodborne like the whole point of Bloodborne is like these are this 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 city where everyone is massively xenophobic and thinks that everything that's gone wrong in the city is because outsiders' blood has mixed with their blood <laughs> and polluted it. Right. And that's what's driving them. And then you realize, no, it wasn't that. It was that at the core of it, this church, this like thing that said they were healing everyone, they were the cause of it. But they, the people don't want to accept that the cause was internal, so they turn to blaming outsiders. Right. And again, that's something that's like, is that ever I don't see that discussed very much, like, in the- I see it discussed in- <laughs> No, of course yeah. not. No, I see it discussed in, like, articles on Bloodborne that are, like, written, like, when people sit down and right, write right, about right. it. But you won't see- like, I don't think videos really engage with that, the YouTube stuff. It, it's all about, like, yeah, there's so much stuff in there that's, like, that I'm interested in, but I don't know. I, I just remembered a quote from uh, Hidetaki Miyazaka that I'm looking up right now because I can't remember it exactly. Yeah, he gave he gave an interview with IGN where he said, personally, a world that is happy and bright is something that just doesn't feel realistic to me. <laughs> it may sound like I have trauma or something, but I believe that generally the world is I believe the world is generally a wasteland that is not kind to us. That is just the way I see it. And you definitely see that evoked in certain like socio-political ways through at least Bloodborne and Sekiro. Dark Souls somewhat, but I don't think nearly as strongly. I, Dark, Dark Souls is kind of hamstrung by the fact it got a sequel. There's a lot of uh, critical work being done in Dark Souls, but it feels way more critical of modern game design than yeah. like like uh, like stronger political theories. Well, yeah, because I mean, Dark Souls is like. I feel like again, this is an issue with like stuff that gets kind of mangled in translation. I don't mangled is right. too strong a word. The translation's very good. Um like it's it's extremely well done, but there's just some like words and some concepts that just you can't really translate them across. Yeah. And I feel like one of the problems with Dark Souls is that people got very into the idea of cycles. Mm-hmm. That it was like like there's like the light and the dark and they're like pulling against each other and like it's like the two sides of the force in star wars and like who can say who will win 
and but really like what it's doing is like i was saying it, it's this like dialectical process where like you introduce light and fire into the world the world then changes and it cannot change back but the world it's changed into is itself not stable and it's going to slide towards something mm-hmm. else and what it's right. sliding toward you don't really know like you don't really have control over this thing you get a little peek in the dlc at like what a world without fire would be like and it's completely monstrous and weird but yeah when you think back to the beginning like before fire existed like the world that exists now is monstrous and strange in comparison to the world before fire so it's like Mm -hmm. things are just like it's just keeping on and keeping on and like when the dark souls 3 kind of gets at this that like okay when this dark thing takes over the world that is going to have to subside at some point and what comes after that right and like that's what it's getting at but but again we got hung up on the idea of cycles and it's like it goes light dark light dark light dark it's like no it goes it goes like light dark who knows (laughs) or or it like simultaneous or it goes light dark simply because like the way i I have a feeling that it's sort of a response to fan interpretation about cycles yeah but uh dark souls 3 engages with this a lot more strongly yeah where it like it wants to present different options and different ways like this world can go uh because um like because like people have resonated so strongly with the idea of cycles yeah yeah um like dark souls 2 when it originally when it originally launched only had one ending Mm. and it is sort of a bad ending because you you don't immediately jump into new game plus the second you finish you have to go and actively make that choice yeah you have to go and accept that you've made the you've changed like you have made this journey you've done this great thing and it has ultimately changed nothing yeah and like you know over the course of dlc they eventually like yeah they 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 show you how to cure the they show you how to cure the 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 curse yeah and it's not like an actual cure but it's like sort of a cure yeah that you can do to yourself and it's like okay and then they present you with the other option which was the option you could do in dark souls one which is just walk away it's like all right sure fine Yeah, I guess. I guess. I guess if you want to go that way, like people generally liked that, liked that you had the option to do that. So yeah, but it it, it feels like less. It, it doesn't feel as strong of a message as just saying you you did you changed to nothing. I think this is another like um things that got sort of lost in in the translation process because like I've been talking to a guy who is a freelance translator about this. Mm-hmm. And he's been going over Dark Souls too, and he's saying to me like, "No, no, no, no! People miss this. What it's saying is, when you sit on the throne at the end of Dark Souls two, that's not saying it's the end. It's saying you've come to the point where you can now make the choices that matter." Right. But again, that's maybe not terribly well communicated because people people were assuming the ending of Dark Souls two just meant you save the world when it's really it's like <laughs> it's supposed to be like the end of your journey is you become the person who can then make the decisions right but we're not going to show you that it, I guess maybe like the ending of, of Planescape Torment like it just shows you your character <laughs> and then it fades out and it's like okay well what my character does next is up to me like how I think they would act there's there's also just interestingly like there's only one character that actually recognizes your sovereignty at the end of the game yeah and that's the cat yeah Shao Kwa is the only one who goes oh hey you're a lord now I guess that's cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I really feel like like 
sequels in Dark Souls was not a good idea, but you know, there's there's some good stuff in them. Here's the thing, I really, really like Dark Souls 3. It's right. probably like Dark Souls 1 is still my favorite. But I feel like Dark Souls 3 comes very close. Um, right, yeah. I like yeah. Dark Souls 2 a lot. I, I know a lot of people really strongly dislike Dark Souls 2, but there's a lot about it I still really enjoy. And I love the really drastic changes it tries to make on the Souls formula. Right, um, yeah. Like, I love I love the way you can handle lighting in that game. Yeah. I don't I don't like that it's just generally orange all the time because you have a lamp. But yeah. um I, I like the mechanic. I like being limited, even though Oh you know, yeah, totally. Eventually yeah. you get to the point where you're not nearly that limited, but yeah. that's still a countdown that's ticking down that you need to be conscious of. It's trying to it's trying to show you, hey, no, this does not last forever. Yeah. Just thematically it's really interesting. Yeah, to me. it does, yeah. And they like, like two. Two is very, very Kingsfield as well in a lot of ways. <laughs> I have never played a Kingsfield game. I mean, I haven't even like watched Let's Plays of them, which is yeah. probably what I should do at this point. But they they seem really interesting. When you mentioned Kingsfield earlier, having an Estus Flask like system, yeah, that is so strange to me because. In my head, Estus Flasks were always a response to how the healing was handled in Demon Souls. <laughs> Where, like, nope. you Demon Souls were just like, you could stockpile these things, and if you were good enough at the game, you were just unkillable. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I played Demon Souls, um, I had enough of the grass that fully restored my hit points. Mm -hmm. So as long as I could last through one combo from King Alant, I could just use it, and I just <laughs> never died. But yeah, yeah, they they start in um it's actually a more weirdly it is a more complex system in Kingsfield than it is in Souls because there's different things you can fill the flasks with. Wow. And oh, you, that's really cool. Yeah, and you it, it, um Kingsfield is all about water like thematically. Interesting. You fill them with water from a fountain, but you have like control over what kind of water is coming out of the fountain. So it's it's kind of like the way you allot Estus in 3, but there's actually, I think there's like four different things you can put in the flasks. That's cool. No, but like you have to get the flasks made. You have to like collect items <laughs> to get a character. To, and there is a character who uses the flasks as currency. Interesting. So there's like items items you can only get by giving away your Estus flask equivalent. But at the same time, this is a game where you maybe have like twenty of them. So you think, oh, it's maybe maybe I do like. It's not like I'm going from five to four. I'm going from like mm -hmm. 20 to 18. So maybe it is worth sacrificing gotcha. it to get this item. And like very, yeah, it's just, it's just such a weird thing. But the economy of Kingsfield is the most interesting <laughs> part of it. It's all these different, all everyone values That's different cool. things differently. And like different things have, you have to constantly weigh up like the use versus the exchange value of different things. And it's such an odd game. And like it, it got a, it got a Western release, but I, I remember it came out and it didn't from memory get very good reviews because it's extremely slow. Yeah. And like, if you've got that and it's, it's against like Ocarina of Time, like it's not, it's not going to look great. Yeah. <laughs> Arguably one of the greatest games ever made, <laughs> yeah. but like. You try to compare the two at the time, not going to happen. It, it is very, it is like 10 FPS, I think. Like, just sort of <laughs> wandering around this island where everything kills you in one hit and you have to start again and there's no respawning. But the first save, this first save point is like uh, 40 minutes into the game, so... <laughs> 
you, you get you get really good at doing that first like 40 minutes because you do it over and over again that's interesting uh maybe maybe they will do a remaster what if, what if that remaster that's coming out from um shoot i'd forget who it is but there's like a big remaster studio that's doing something for sony right now i know devolver did the metal wolf chaos remaster not devolver okay. um i think i think the people i'm thinking of are the same people who did the the shadow of the colossus remake oh right right yep yeah they're supposedly working on a project right now and right. everyone is kind of suspecting that it's demon souls what if they just come out with full Kingsfield remasters? I, I would I would love just like Kingsfield collection because there's like four of them. That would be really great. Yeah, we've uh, we've gone like a little longer than I thought we were going That's cool. to. Yeah, <laughs> so we should probably wind down. But this has been uh, this has been an absolutely great time. Thank you. I I would uh, I'm trying to interview just like one person at a time. <laughs> Uh, but it's like I would love to have you on to talk again sometime about oh, cool. like yeah, more yeah. in depth Dark Souls stuff. Um, where can people find you if they want to find you? Uh, if you just look on YouTube for Sinclair Law, which is S I N C L A I R L O R E as one word, uh, you will find the stuff that I did with Sinclair and I'm still working on. Nice. Oh, my Twitter is uh, Richard underscore Pillbeam. Nice. Uh, this is this has been great. Yeah, thank you. It has. <laughs> All right. Uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Me too.